Unhappy events abroad have retaught us two simple truths about the liberty of a democratic people. The first truth is that the liberty of a democracy is not safe if the people tolerate the growth of private power to a point where it becomes stronger than the democratic state itself. The second truth is that the liberty of a democracy is not safe if its business system does not provide employment and produce and distribute goods in such a way as to sustain an acceptable standard of living. Both lessons hit home. It has been well said that the freest government, if it could exist, would not be long acceptable if the tendency of the laws were to create a rapid accumulation of property in a few hands and to render the great mass of the population dependent and penniless. Today, many Americans ask the uneasy question, is the vociferation that our liberties are, liberties are in danger justified by the facts? Today's answer on the part of average men and women in every section of the country is far more accurate than it would have been in 1929. For the very simple reason that during the past nine years, we've been doing a lot of common sense thinking. Their answer is that if there is a danger, it comes from that concentrated private economic power, which is struggling so hard to master our democratic government. It will not come as some, by no means all, of the possessors of that private power would make the people believe from our democratic government itself. That was... Franklin Delano Roosevelt, April 29th, 1938, the message to Congress on curbing monopolies. We are very pleased today to welcome repeat pod offender Saurabh Amari. Saurabh, thank you for being with us to talk about your latest book titled Tyranny, Inc. So I got to ask you, was FDR right? He was dead on, Susanna, and uh, thank, you for, thank you for having me. In fact, I could have used that as an epigraph for my book, as it happens I used uh, James chapter five, verse four, uh, about uh, those unjust employers who don't pay their workers, um, and a quote from a 19th century populist slash progressive figure, uh, Henry Damaris Lloyd, uh, who said, our barbarians come from above. But I well could have used that um, excerpt from that speech, um, uh, which is absolutely apt for a book that's fundamentally about the ways that private concentrations of power, if left unchecked, undo our highest aspirations as a political community to a small-d democracy, to, um, uh, to justice, fairness, etc. In other words, we risk having, and that's the thesis of this book, and I give an account of it through both reporting and then kind of long-form historical argument, that... Um, that private power, if left unchecked, threatens um, political democracy. Um, it creates a society that is shot through with coercion, but which ordinary people can't um, resist that coercion precisely because it treats treats it as a private matter and therefore not subject to our collective political determination. And, and so in, in your book, uh, Sora, which I immensely enjoyed reading, and uh, I'm looking forward to what kind of reactions it gets when it lands. <laughs> um, to be clear, the tyranny of the title, the Tyranny Inc., um, you're focusing particularly on private coercion. Is that right? Yes. So there have been a number of um, books recently about um, you know, the phenomenon known as, as, as woke capital. Um, and I go out of my way to say that this is not one more, you know, right-wing tirade against woke capital. In other words, um, the fundamental problem with this, the kind of coercion, privatized coercion that is 
the subject of this book is not the ideological color that it takes. The fact that you know um, the co- the company that pays you um, you know abysmal wages or that abuses its market power to you know erode goods that are important for our common good. The fact that it's that that's all masked in you know a kind of woke. Uh, regalia or so external messaging that's about like LGBTQ rights and Black Lives Matter and so forth, that that's not the fundamental problem. And in fact, the, the critiques that are just focused on the sort of cultural aspect are wittingly or otherwise helping uphold the current system. The fundamental problem is just vast disparities in power and vast disparities in, in the distribution of social income that creates a society where uh, you know, I, corporations can push us around around culturally or, or ideologically, um, whatever the ideology may be, whether it's right wing, left wing, whatever. That's that's a sort of it's a sort of an epiphenomenon. It's a secondary knock on effect. The fundamental phenomenon, the one that I hope to focus the reader's attention on, is just the sheer ability of a company, uh, typically in the employment relationship, but not exclusively to coerce us and that the ways that uh, that coercion is upheld by our system, including through our government, just refusing to act, refusing to regulate something because the, I, the premise is that this is a private zone and therefore we can't intervene. It really, I mean, it links very tightly with some of the things that you had been talking about, you know, probably about three years or so ago in the sense that although it's, you know, sort of platform independent of left and right here it's or you know it can sort of use either um side of the culture war as it as the thing that it's pushing it is very linked to the idea of liberalism in the classical sense because there's a way that this kind of power disguises itself by saying well you chose to click those terms of service you chose to enter into this employee contract um which i mean you know the the classic i don't know if it was dickens or someone like dickens but you know, he said both a rich man and a poor man are equally free to live under a bridge, and that kind of disguised coercion behind the the um, the concept of liberty in this very uh, you know nineteenth century liberal sense is what it seems to me you're really focusing with a pretty laser like precision on. Is that a fair read? Oh, absolutely. And so, so to try to make it concrete. Um... I mean, in the 19th century, as you know, the doctrine that this um, this way of thinking uh, came to be named under was called liberty of contract. And the idea is that, especially in the employment context, uh, you know, employer and employee are free, meet each other with symmetrical power because each can walk away from the transaction. And therefore, the transaction that they strike, its terms are, generally speaking, optimal and not to be interfered with by government. Um, And this idea arose, especially in a sort of 18th century context, when you had, it was an age of what's called masterless men, right? There were artisans, yeoman farmers, you know, merchants, mechanics, what they were called mechanics and engineers. And these men and women would meet each other in the marketplace at arm's length they would transact. I give you my surplus apple. You, you give me your surplus honey, and we each walk away. 
and that's that. And so in a way, that doctrine of liberty of contract did make some sense in that context. And it was formulated, generally speaking, by these free market laissez-faire theorists in that context. But then the Industrial Revolution happened, and it completely changed the pattern of how these transactions happen. Yes, employer and employee initially met each other at arm's length, but once the employee signed on the dotted line, he came under the total, near total power of the employer who could you know, dictate his use of his time and his use of his body for most of his waking life. And uh, because of the nature of, the, of, of industrial organization, the ordinary worker you know, couldn't walk away from his his or her job the same way that the master masterless men of old could, right? Because uh, there were many, many more workers that were all proletarianized. And this still is basically the condition that prevails. Most people are dependent for their basic subsistence on only being able to sell their wages. It's only a relatively narrow slice of society that has the financial and productive assets that allows them to um, you know, employ others. And that it's they who can, you know, who can set the terms. For most other people, um, it's not the case. And so just very briefly, I know like that was a long-winded answer, but to give a concrete example of how this 19th century idea of liberty of contract, which was supposed to have been swept away in some ways by the New Deal. The New Deal was a recognition that that's not how the real economy works. We've just mentioned FDR at the opening, Susanna. Um, we can talk about, for example, the, the abuse of commercial arbitration in the American workplace. Commercial arbitration is very, very old. Arbitration in general goes back to medieval times. Um, it was the idea that instead of litigating their disputes, uh, parties that were in dispute would have their disputes resolved uh, by some other authority than like the courts. It was typically the church. So people would have like land disputes, feuds between, you know, families that were bound by marriage or what have you. And then one on, on law day, they would sue each other. But there was this alternative called love day when they would meet each other and the church would quickly uh, sort of mediate between their conflicts. This is a very old idea. In the American context, after a while, merchants thought it would be good to bring arbitration so that they weren't so bogged down in litigation. And that's how we got the Federal Arbitration Act in 1925. The people who um, designed the law wanted to design a law that allows merchants of relatively equal bargaining power, they repeatedly said this, to quickly resolve their conflicts without like the bloody methods of court systems with all the time and expense it takes to litigate something. It was never meant to apply to the employment relationship. Only beginning of the 1980s, primarily led by conservative majorities on the Supreme Court through today, the uh, the arbitration agreement has come to become mandatory in the employment context, context, such that, for example, in the sort of definitive case, which was handed down by Chief Justice Gorsuch just in 2018, an employee of... Um, of uh, the accounting giant Ernst & Young sued Ernst & Young for underpayment of wages under the Fair Labor Standards Act. That's the federal law that gives you the minimum wage and under California labor law. He, the amount that he wanted to recover would have added up to $4,000. In order to arbitrate his dispute, which was required in his employment contract, he would have had to spend $200,000. Ernst & Young never challenged that fact. 
But the Supreme Court, Court held, nevertheless, that he had basically freely agreed to arbitrate his disputes and therefore couldn't get out of individual arbitration and couldn't use class action or even class arbitration. He has to present his complaint singly. The problem with that is, of course, it's irrational. There's no way for him to vindicate rights that he otherwise has under federal labor laws unless he's allowed to band together with other similarly, similarly situated employees. Um, but the, our Supreme Court said, no, you had liberty of contract. The interesting thing is that when Morris, the, the plaintiff in this case, was first employed by Ernst & Young, arbitration wasn't part of the contract. The way it happened was one day, as like in the middle of his career there, he received an email from the firm that said, if you show up to work the next day, going forward, you agree to, to arbitrate your disputes in kind of privatized court rather than have the right to sue us in a regular ordinary court of law. Um, and the idea of free market liberty of contract in the 19th century sense, which you mentioned, Susanna, is basically that at that point, you know, Morris was free to walk away from the deal. But in reality, no one does that. You show up to work the next day because you need a paycheck. And so this is how this, this insidious way of pretending like there is a symmetry between the two parties that therefore they can really optimally contract without state intervention to make sure it's fair is, is still operative in our economy. We think that like that era is over. It's not really. It's the norm for most workers governing most issues in the workplace. What's exciting to me about your book is that like so many, you know, books that we have both read a thousand of start kind of like focus their um, genealogy, genealogizing or like under historical understanding of how we got where we are, um, specifically on ideas in particular. This obviously started with Richard Weaver and like, you know, so you, you basically end up blaming William of Ockham um, and the bad ideas that are behind you know, what's come to be kind of our contemporary liberal or progressive or, or, or right liberal, you know, world. And you, you know, you don't ignore ideas, but this is a much more, I wouldn't want to call it historical materialist, but a little bit historical materialist um, account. And you're really paying attention to like, how people avoid, you know, starving to death. And that's kind of an important aspect that that is an important aspect of history as well as um pure kind of like sort of off-brand monks you know being a little bit weird about saint thomas um it seems to me that like looking at your i guess approach and set of interests over the last couple of years you did kind of make a move from a more idealist to a more materialist in in a good sense um approach to understanding and analysis is that accurate and what was that like well, it's it's a really bedeviling thing, and it's it's something that um, honestly, for about four or five four to five years, I've been thinking if I could, if I had time in a different life to like go to the I don't know what's the graduate program that I find really attractive is like uh, you know committee on social thought, thought at Chicago or something. I would want to write about kind of how do you intersect how, how do you how do you create a an epistemology that doesn't, uh, on the one hand, reduce every intellectual development to the underlying kind of material, um, contingent material and historical forces that are operative at a given conjuncture, on the one hand, or on the other hand, to sort of the go into the full flight into idealism in which 
you know, ideas are just over there and they're either right or wrong. And if you pick the wrong ideas, then you get the wrong historical, bad historical developments. I think the, the first one that I mentioned, of course, is, is the problem with historical materialism, which is why I'm not a historical materialist, because then the, no moral claim can survive that. Right. Any universal moral claim has to be historicized. People thought XYZ was bad because it legitimated blah, 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 social structure, et cetera, et cetera. But if you go to the other extreme, which is honestly a lot of Catholic, at least American Catholic, um, you know, intellectual life, it's that extreme idealism, which is like, you know, Occam and and a few others thought the wrong thing about whether or not you can, you know, make general statements about categories or whatever. And therefore, we ended up with the you know, bad aspects of the Enlightenment, therefore the Reformation, therefore da 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 up to today, the bad things you don't like. And both of them strike me as wrong. And so I think at a theoretical level, there has to be some meaning of the two for me intellectually. And this book is an attempt to try to do that, which is to say, look, yes, there are historical developments that have brought us to the um, uh, point that we are now, but there has to be universal moral norms operative that tell you that there are some there's something wrong with what how we're operating our economy for example in other words if i didn't believe the sort of absolutes of of the christian faith of natural law etc i would have no metric by which to judge the material historical developments that i'm decrying in the book what would i have to say i'd say why why is it wrong for an employer to to coerce his employee into arbitration like that right You'd have to be like, it's not my preference. It's not how, you know, it's not my preference. It's not my preference. But, but even, I mean, I think even hardcore Marxists never are never as as fully kind of materialist as they claim to be. They're fired up by some moral wrongs that they, that they wish to correct. And why, you know, why is that? It's because they, <clears throat> you know, yeah. So that's, um, but, but it's a really good question. It's something I'm, I'm constantly grappling with. It seems that one sort of commonality to uh, what some of the different phenomena that you uh, discuss in the book um, is the privatization of what really should be commons, right? And this distinction that you mentioned earlier between private and public being overly hard, um, that there's this idea that as long as we're publicly free, private oppression, um, private tyranny is okay. And just... Uh, just for our, our listeners, um, there's chapters in this book, not only on private arbitration, which we just were talking about, but also uh, you talk about the role of private equity firms uh, and their impact on employment, um, the privatization of first responders, which is a fascinating thing with something not I'm not familiar from where I live in the Hudson Valley, but apparently in rural America, that's a, a big deal. You get a, a bill from your fire department. Um, local news. Um, the disappearance of that and, and these news deserts that are developing where it's basically impossible to talk about local abuses of power. And uh, you talk about things like Chapter 11 bankruptcy. Um, what is it kind of fair to see, see that as um, different ways in which what once used to be regarded as commons have been turned into a uh, private areas subject to, uh, you know, the domination of those with the assets to control them. Yeah, I mean, 
there is several ways to tackle this. One is always kind of my favorite, which is the historical. And that's the the story that, for example, uh, Karl Polanyi, this non-Marxist um, socialist economic historian, Austro-Hungarian, but lived most of his life in Britain, um, the story that he tells about uh, the enclosure controversy in England, right, which is um, contrary to the to the free market sort of laissez-faire story that is often told, which is that, you know, capitalism grew organically and people just sort of began trading with each other in cities like uh, Florence or some cities in Amsterdam and in the, in the Netherlands and so forth. You have this very picturesque, you know, idea of people in Florence just sort of exchanging, you know, my silk robe for your Michelangelo, you know. Yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. And they're all dressed really well, and and it's like beautiful out, and they're in the agora kind there's of. There's really freaking good wine. There's everyone's like very, you know, it's, it's a great scene. You can't you can't blame you know economic liberals for painting this sort of romantic picture of their own origins, but the reality is that it was actually, um, you know, the degree of privatization that was uh, necessary for the market system to work right we, there were always markets but that what's not what was novel about the early modern era is the, the rise of market society or the market system where society in which the market is this autonomous institution that exists separately from you know the other activities that we associated with our common life together right religion the demands of the poor etc cetera, etc cetera. this all gets kind of abstracted and there was this thing created called the market and everything in order for it to you know, operate as autonomously as 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 capitalists wished. Everything else had to be reordered around that. And Polanyi tells the story of of how painful the bringing that bringing about of that world was. Right? It was uh, used to be that peasants had all this vast amount of of land uh, that was thought to be held in in common where they could graze. But then you know, en enterprising noblemen came around who wanted to use this as their uh, in private land for for commercial farming and they sort of disrupted the entire way of life of the of the peasants who then came to form the base of sort of victorian capitalism they became they were ground down in those you know dickensian factories that we we know from literature these were people who formerly at least their parents or grandparents had this much more decent way of life and that was all brought about by state coercion it didn't it wasn't it wasn't a natural development it was through the brute force of the nobles driving people out and enclosing land that used to be held in common. And then parliament in England, um, you know, over time ratifying it. Interestingly, it was often, it was often the, um, the, the, the monarchy that stood with the peasants against these uh, enterprising sort of proto-capitalist nobles, uh, <laughs> which may, complicates the story. But, but um the, the point is that that didn't come about. It, there's nothing natural about that. It was a, a result of political choice, political coercion, which was, at, you know, legalized or written into law after the fact. Um, and so today, you know, the same thing happens. A, you know, a lot of the transactions that are the subject of this book, which I describe as private tyranny or private coercion, um, it, it doesn't happen naturally. For it to happen, the state has to give it its own sanction, right? So that... Certain goods that used to be thought as untouchable because they were part of the commons 
were treated as things that could be up for sale. That's not a natural development. That's a you know human institutional development, which that means we can reverse it too. By the way, yeah, I I, I will just give a, a quick shout out for anybody who's listening to this and uh, would like to learn more about this story of enclosure of the commons. We have a great article about it in our new issue on money uh, by Jack Bell on it's called Saving the Commons. Um, and in there, there's this w amazing factoid that I believe over the course of the enclosures, like one fifth of the land in England went from being commonly held to, you know, forcibly privatized to the benefit of those with with the power and the assets already. Today, I mean, one 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 thing that jumped out at me from your book that that I've been thinking about uh, is time itself is a kind of commons, right? And the growth of kind of just in time scheduling of workers uh, outside of the traditional workday uh, doesn't seem quite as obvious as a form of enclosure as grabbing the land where you used to have your goat away. Um, but it really is the same. Um, you, you tell a, a pretty, um, you know, horrible story, which uh, of a young mother who uh, basically finds it impossible to take care of her newborn because her job can't uh, give her the hours when she's meant to work uh, in enough time to get childcare. That's a really good point, which I hadn't, I hadn't even made the connection that of, of time as a commons um, and a commons that's re regulated by various natural and liturgical calendars. Here's the time to celebrate my wedding. Here's the time for me to, you know, be with my newborn. Here's the time for et cetera, et cetera. Uh, it all becomes subject to capricious market determination um, in the case of just-in-time scheduling, which is what is just-in-time scheduling? It's it's the mode of organizing, especially in the service and retail economy, where um, employers ha em sorry employees have to be ever at the ready for the last at the last minute instead of having any sense of regularity about their upcoming week's schedule. Um, this is a new development. Workers tended to have more notice about okay, I work Mondays, Wednesdays, and Fridays. But I have Tuesdays and Thursdays off. That's when I when I spend with my sick kid or with my you know, ailing old grandparents, whatever you might have, um, it, it's become ever more common. In fact, about a third of the Americans who work in, um, in restaurant and retail, which is a huge share of Americans, there's 25 million Americans work there. A third of those people don't get, uh, they get, they get less than a week's notice about their upcoming schedule. Now, it's, it's very obvious. I mean, there's, there are studies for everything, but they should be, you know, common sense, right? These people suffer a lot because of that precarity. Um, how do they suffer? Uh, their children tend to have worse, all sorts of worse outcomes in terms of development, in terms of behavior in school, getting into fights, academic outcomes. Um, it's bad. The, the workers themselves say that the, the precarious wages that comes as a result of precarious scheduling the wages aren't even as bad in terms of in their mind as just the sheer fact of the precarity of scheduling. Um, but why? So why why do we do this? Right? We've always have had a service industry, right? It, it, it's it's a relatively new development that they use algorithms to schedule people's times this way. Well, it's a way 
to shift more of the costs associated with doing business to workers. What do I mean by that? If you have a normal uh, schedule for your workers, you you assume that, look, there are going to be moments of low demand for my services, okay? And the employer and the employee will eat some of that cost in a relatively equal way, right? And then we share the burdens. But if you schedule things this way, when this last in last minute, just in time scheduling, you offload all the costs associated with low demand onto workers. It's up to, you know, you're dealing with the consequences that there might be low demand at a point, and that's when I won't call you. Or they use something called clopening schedules, clopening, like, Close, uh, opening and closing, clopening. What that means is that the workers only work like an hour and a half or two hours at the opening of the store. And then there's like a three hour break in the middle. And then they work two hours, you know, at the end when it's closing time, because that's when it's busy. So the all the, the negative effects that are associated with, with uh, potential low demand get offloaded into the worker and his or her family members. So this is, I mean, this is kind of the scheduling version of what are called negative externalities. So you might think of like a an oil company who just, for example, that you might call Exxon, who just, for example, might spend 100 years, um, you know, dumping its miscellaneous sludge into Raritan Bay in New Jersey um, because it's cheaper than dealing with it uh, without dumping it into this commons, this literal commons of, of the citizens of New, New Jersey who deserve consideration despite being from New Jersey. Um, so that's the kind of like, it's, it's the, it's negative externalities, but it's kind of the time version of that. Is that accurate? No, it absolutely is. And it, it in a way now that, that, uh, Peter has expanded our definition of the commons. You think about the the body of our common people, of us, our bodies as part of the commons that should have some sense of predictability, of rest. This is stuff that typically people in the white-collar professions still take for granted, but people in the pink and blue-collar professions increasingly can't. And if you've read the book, it's, it's, um, it's full of frustration f- for my own side as it were, which is namely uh, a certain kind of conservative Christian who who decries various social phenomena, like uh, people aren't getting married, people aren't having children. Um, why do people seem so uh, filled with ennui and aren't civically engaged, aren't going to churches, etc.? And those are all really legitimate concerns to have. But some, not all, some conservative Christians have historically had this tendency to never connect those cultural phenomena that they rightly decry to the potential material uh, causes, to the way we organize our political economy. So that if you do that to someone's soul and body, you sort of demand that they work with no sense of predictability about their schedule, only two hours at the opening, two hours at the end, which means their wages are precarious as well. Um, All that that does to their other relationships with their you know, children, spouse, elderly, et cetera, and then wonder, well, you know, what, why are why are they like this? You know, right? Why are why are why are marriage and birth rates going down, and why are people bowling alone? Right? <laughs> this is, I mean, this is honestly, Sarb. It really feels to me like the work that you're doing in this book is so similar, is most similar in a way to the kind of work that people like Leah Labresco or Mary Harrington or Louise Perry are doing. Um, looking at kind of like the the relationship between the material reality of women's bodies and the economics of 
the, the sort of economic effects of things like the pill and the sexual revolution, obviously decisions about sexuality are moral decisions, but by purely moralizing everything having to do with sex and not kind of recognizing the both the materiality of women's bodies and the materiality of like the economic and you know chemical um, things that we do to ourselves and each other, you're kind of like ignoring a huge part of reality. And it seems like you're trying to do that in a weird way with economics more broadly. It's, it just feels like a similar project to me. I, I'm I'm happy to be counted among the ranks of, of those women, many of whom I consider uh, friends and allies in the fight. Uh, the only thing I would add is, you know, in my case, in a way, the problem is framed more simply, right? In other words, it, it, or rather the solution is, to me, not that complicated, right? We did have an economy in which uh, you know, working class people got a fairer shake. They the the social income was distributed a little bit more equitably. Uh, people got vacations. People got a sense of investment in their work. They got a say through unions, etc. And I'm talking about the period roughly between 1945 to whenever neoliberalism began, which is maybe the 1970s. Even 73 is often a year that's used for that. And um. So there are, there are certain things about the period which are specifically contingent to that time, and it would be you know foolish to try to reproduce every aspect of it. But some of the elements of that class consensus or class compromise um, are transhistorical, right? If you if you raise up workers' countervailing power through labor unions or through minimum wage laws, um, then the distribution of social of the social income will be a little bit more equitable. And by the way, you know, th this was a period of also of extreme dynamism in the U.S. economy. This was a period of mass manufacturing, the period of, uh, you know, inno inno some of the most innovative uh, companies that we now think about, innovations that were actually useful as opposed to like weird apps that help you, you know, customize your exactly what kind of porn you want, you know, but like real things <laughs> that were useful. That was a great time for all of that. So, you know, I, I'm not saying I differ from the women that you, that you mm -hmm. named, but in my case, I, you know, it's broader, people, it's broader, but also people might be surprised at how, hum, you know, g given my reputation or some of the other stuff that they've read, how humdrum in a way my solutions are. It's like, you know, John Kenneth Galbraith, FDR, the new deal, there's a lot of wisdom there that we can, you know, apply to our age. Again, taking into account economic conditions of change, you have to adjust for certain things. But for example, the idea of countervailing power, which we owe to Galbraith, is, is not like limited to the mid-century. It still applies. You can still help raise up countervailing power and so create a condition in which, you know, the power and income are distributed a little bit more equally. And a lot of good flows from that. Just a little housekeeping. Don't forget to subscribe to this podcast on iTunes. We'll be back with the rest of Peter's and my conversation with Saurabh after the break. Could we just uh, get a kind of a little more of a preview of what your proposed solution is, Saurabh? I mean, you've sketched, you've sketched it but what are the different components of it that you kind of go into in the book? 
Sure. Um, so a lot of the conditions we suffer from today are similar to the ones that prevailed uh, in the 19th, in the late 19th century and early 20th century. You had uh, vastly unequal distribution of income and power between the asset-owning class and the, the asset-less class or the asset-less majority. Um, you had, as a result, a lot of rich people having a lot of money to do dangerous financial speculation that was not necessarily productive and, in fact, was destructive often. Um, and all this created a society eventually that came to, to a crash during the Great Depression because you had workers who could, they weren't paid enough to buy the goods that they were producing. So it eventually led to a kind of demand crisis and you had the Great Depression and the two world wars, et cetera. I'm not saying that this single explanation explains the world wars as well, but just an era of like crisis upon crisis. And then you had a new consensus emerge post during the during the depression and then solidified post-war and it was a bipartisan consensus it was upheld not just by you know fdr and labor progressives but also by conservative figures like president eisenhower and nixon you could call it a sort of fdr eisenhower nixon consensus and the fundamental basis of that i argue was the was the notion that um bigness isn't necessarily bad in our economy so the the it's not the idea isn't necessarily that you have to break every large concentration of power down to size because in many cases actually the large companies for all sorts of reasons were socially productive like they could they're the ones who can afford vast put vast amounts into technological research for example or because if you have a ton of small companies competing in certain kinds of industries like railroads it creates dangerous competition and you have a whole cycle of bankruptcies, and eventually one big one or two big ones will emerge among them anyway. Rather, the better way is to raise up the countervailing power of people who are subject to the coercion of the large. What does that mean? Um, if, uh, in situations where you have only two or three sellers in, in any given market, you could do two things. You can break up the big sellers, but like I said, in many areas, that's actually not productive and it causes all sorts of social disruption um, or you could raise up the power of people on the other side of the market so for example buyers so um, if you have a, a few companies that manufacture washing machines and they're the sellers the department stores of old like sears would just organically countervail the power of the sellers and they would pass on the savings to consumers, and it was everyone. It was like win, win, win. Everyone's happy on every end. Um, but in some markets, like the labor market, that process doesn't happen naturally. There are all sorts of barriers having to do with the way that you know you have many, 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 many workers, and you have only a few buyers of labor power. So those few buyers can really dictate the terms, and workers, for all sorts of reasons, are afraid to speak up for themselves to band together. Every incentive is against doing that under normal conditions. But if you have government sort of tipping the scales a little bit, uh, then workers, whether that's by sort of encouraging collective bargaining, as we did with the Wagner Act, or as we did with the Fair Labor Standards Act, which gave a minimum wage, that gives workers a sense of security. And then they can also organize in the workplace and so forth. And they can be a little bit less sort of under the thumb of the employer. 
And that was the idea of the New Deal. The two biggest pieces of the New Deal, in my argument, are the Wagner Act and the Fair Labor Standards Act. Uh, Wagner Act was mainly directed for organized sectors, and the Fair Labor Standards Act mainly addressed uh, workers in the non-organized sectors of the economy. But in either case, it gave them the sort of sense of political and economic security that they could stand up for themselves. And so this really isn't too different from antitrust. In in antitrust, you the fear is you have only uh, one seller, so you want to break it up so you have multiple sellers. In this case, you're giving power to the other side of the market. You're helping buyers going up against sellers or selling sellers going up against buyers. And so, by the way, this is all I, I credit to John Kenneth Galbraith, who's this mid-century figure, kind of forgotten, who came up with the theory of countervailing power. That seems to me not limited to the issue of, to, to the conditions of the, you know, mid-century, 20th century era. That that idea is trans-historical. It, it could apply to our time and I argue that we should, and all sorts of other salutary benefits flow from that. But the bottom line is what flows from it is just a little bit more of an equal society. Not talking about full socialism. It was not full socialism in the mid-century. Just talking about a little bit more equal. And what that means is, you know, bosses, large companies don't have so much power and so much money to spend uh, either on dangerous speculation or on their political um, lobbying. You ha- Or labor has a little bit more to do lobbying for itself. And so what you're aiming for is just a little bit more equitable distribution of the social income. And I think all sorts of other problems that are documented in the book would be addressed if we just had this one element. I mean, since we we love having labels, I mean, what do you call the solution? I I think a, a, a term you use one place in the book is political exchange capitalism. It kind of reminded me a lot, um, of sort of Christian social democracy after, uh, in, in Europe in the sixties and seventies. Yeah. I, uh, we, we, I don't dwell too much. I actually use the labels sort of, uh, interchangeably. I use social democracy. I use, um, class compromise capitalism, but the one I prefer, and it's sort of a coinage of the book is political exchange capitalism. And just the idea is that well, coercion is inevitable in human affairs. The, you, the idea of a market economy in which coercion doesn't happen is, a, is just that. It's an ideal and never, never, is never going to come about. And if you, if you cling to that idea, what you'll get is an economy that is shot through with coercion, but it's coercion that uh, can't be resisted, can't be challenged because we don't even recognize it as coercion. So uh, instead, we should try to recognize, look, coercion is inevitable, but the people who are subject to coercion should be given a say over its extent, over its ends, over its means. And what you get as a result is the asset-less many coming to give some sort of active assent to the system as a whole, rather than just experiencing it as this thing that happens to them and they tolerate it because they need to earn a paycheck. And so the market exchange becomes subject to political exchange, hence the name political exchange capitalism. But the idea is not um, anything new. It, like you said, it's Christian democracy. It's social democracy. Another term that, that is used by David Harvey, the, the Marxist economist, is embedded liberalism, right? Liberalism, meaning market liberalism, if it's not embedded, it does, you know, terraform society in really destructive ways. And we see that today. 
So embedded liberalism was the 20th century idea that you take the market, but you embedded within larger political structures and give and take all the things we associate with a good society, right? We associate a good society with one where you have some say over the things that happen to you. If something bad happens, you have some right of procedural right to sort of challenge it. You can band together with your fellows to demand something that you think requires change, et cetera. Those are the things that we associate with a good politics. And the idea of political exchange capitalism is that the market should also be embedded with the, within these larger structures of give and take, of due process, of you know, the opportunity to challenge, et cetera, et cetera. So just to kind of like bring it down from the sort of very 21st century, but, you know, looking back to the 20th century and kind of policy-ish um, and political economy approach, like, I, I do think that like your use of scripture as the kind of kickoff quote in the book points to, and then even just like reflecting on the word tyranny that you use to describe this, just sort of does point to like, there is a, there's a very, very universal sort of principle that we're, we're talking about here. So tyranny is the use of power to benefit your private good at the expense of the common good or the good of your employer, or your debtor. And what, you know, the Bible notices a whole lot is this phenomenon of tyranny, uh, that kind of use of power, which ends up being something like bullying by the rich and those who can lend and employ over those who don't have those means of production, if you might want to put it that way. So this is like, it might seem, you know, talking about specific 20th century developments, the labor movement, et cetera, it might seem very kind of wonky or in the weeds, but it is, it's a deep, like this is foundational to all, you know, political theology, basically everything, like everything that we want to say about what it means to live together well. I mean, St. James is very, very unhappy with people treating their employees bad. <laughs> yeah. And this is not a different kind of thing. Like it, it can be mystified. It can be, you know, we obviously there wasn't the kind of corporate consumer capitalism that back then, but like, it's the same thing. It's the same phenomenon. Um, and I just thought, I, I think your book does a really good job of tracing that phenomenon in ways like helping people recognize it because it's so it can be so invisible. And that's one of the weird things about it. It feels like it's this kind of miasma of coercion or my like a miasma of injustice that we kind of can't put our finger on almost and the book, the job that the book seems to be to me to be doing is really trying to put your finger on it and say, look, look, here it is again. It's this is how it works. Is that, was that kind of like what you're aiming to do? Oh, absolutely. And again, this goes back to your earlier question, you know, idealism versus materialism, analytically speaking. Um, you know, the idealism in terms of a sense of absolute moral standards is always there, even though the book itself can become, you know, it's a, it's a book about political economy and it's, you know, there's a lot of financial reporting and et cetera. But the, for the reader, I hope in the background is always the more, you know, universal, uh, sorry, the more um, timeless question of sin, right? The, 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 what, what's, what's being described here is a form of sin, but it's just, it's just that it's a structural sin or a societal sin that therefore requires, uh, you know, being addressed in a structural way. That, <clears throat> that doesn't mean that like the church or the righteous Christian individual doesn't have a duty to, um, um, with the grace of God, try to uh, 
um, extirpate sin from their individual lives. But there are also, you know, the Bible is very clear on this point. There are national sins. There are structural sins. And that's what's informing this. And so I, it's funny, like I've been sending it to, yeah, because I do have like, you know, a lot of Catholic uh, readers and Catholic outlets that have typically been interested in my work. And I have to preface it in this way. I'm like, you know, if, if you flip through it, other than the epigraph, the, you know, Catholicism or Christianity isn't necessarily in the foreground of this book, but it's, I, I would argue it's everywhere in the, in the background. Well, I mean, Leo the 13th is all through this, right? <laughs> He is. Leo is there explicitly. I now forget. Yes. <laughs> I, I, I have this very good trick, which is the opening of of uh, of Rerum Novarum, uh, his encyclical on labor and capital. Uh, <laughs> the opening of it, because it's written in the 19th century, it's a certain kind of tone and it's describing a kind of uh, industrial and moral apocalypse. Right. Um, that like workers are oppressed. Uh, there's, you know, rapid development of industry, but there's also rapid development of inequality and and lots of people who are dispossessed, etc. And so in the book, there's a point, and this is kind of a spoiler, but I quote it, I'm like, you know, as Marx wrote in, you know, in the 19th century, and I quote Rerum Novarum, and then I sort of <laughs> I'm like, I will actually, no, that, that wasn't Marx, that was, that was Pope Leo. <laughs> I really enjoyed. I really enjoyed that trick. Um, you got me. Um, you do do that a couple of times. Like you do that in the opening as well. Yes. No, but I think since this is, you know, uh, a plow podcast and we're a Christian magazine, it's worth underlining that what we're talking about is not um, just political economy out there, um, but something that's actually pretty central to the traditional Christian faith. Uh, I was just reading uh, Ambrose of Milan a, a, a bunch, and uh, his he has this incredibly strongly worded um, sermon on the story of Naboth, uh, the man whose vineyard was stolen by Ahab, the evil king of Israel. Um, and he really then turns it right around and and as Ambrose was known to do, kind of nails the wealthy landowners in his congregation who were just sitting there. And I imagine everyone would have been looking at them um, because uh, as he preached to them about basically enclosure of the commons, um, grabbing, <laughs> grabbing lands that the poor had used to live from in order to expand their estates. Woe to you who add house to house and field to field because you're going to end up alone, which is such a bleak and terrifying. What a powerful, powerful, uh, piece of scripture that is wow you're gonna end up alone it's incredible so the the privatization of wealth that should somehow be serving the common good i guess i mean we're all agreed here we're not gonna fight with each other about it although we might have some disagreement about how to get there um is not just sort of a, a wonky economist thing it really is from a christian perspective a pretty central concern that we should really be caring about Amen. I mean, I, I, I'm preaching to the choir here, but it's worth saying. <laughs> this is this is such a plowish book. This is almost more of a plowish book than I suspect other podcasts and interviews out beyond won't be so uh, full of comedy and mutual agreement. I was recently at a Christian conservative event, Solrab, um, without I will not name, uh, but it was a Christian um, a Christian event dedicated to the veneration of. Um, 
uh, St. Milton Friedman. Um, and uh, there was, uh, you know, a, a person you mentioned in your book, but not in complete agreement, right? Um, this idea, which you call market utopianism, um, maybe other people have too, but it struck me from your book is a really good one. This idea that markets somehow magically do away with any form of coercion in, in, in economic affairs. They, they just uh, by themselves sort of infuse it uh, with freedom and all that, that sense of one person dominating another just kind of goes away um, because it's a market. They were very concerned, actually. I think your name was mentioned um, by uh, conservative, younger conservatives uh, who are straying from the Friedman and Hayek path. Pete, I think you, the way you described this was they were girding their loins against Saurabh. I mean, how do you respond to that very predictable critique, right? That basically, markets, you know, Hayek, as you write in your book, was responding to a kind of fear of collectivism that had to do with his own experience of fascism and Bolshevism. Um, and he kind of saw the market as this way for the individual to carve out a, a realm of freedom. Um, and for decades in this country, most Christian conservatives saw things the same way, right? And they saw, uh, they've seen this kind of call to more collective active uh, action, um, what you call a, a sort of a politics, right? Um, as something that's threatening to the individual rights and dignity of the, of the person who's sort of virtuously making their way in the world. I, I would just say that, that um, there's many ways to tackle this, but the first one is if you're, if you're a Christian and you want to have some fidelity to the Christian tradition of thinking about uh, society, politics, and political economy, if you think that's important, then you have to recognize that um, that free market libertarianism, or especially you would call Hayek and Friedman really neoliberals, and we can talk about the difference between old school new, you know, libertarianism or classical liberalism and neoliberalism, very roughly, and I borrow this from the political theorist Wendy Brown, uh, classical liberalism is... Um, the state should leave the market alone. Uh, now, for all sorts of reasons, that was flawed because the state creates the market, as Pogliani taught us. Um, the, the market's operation touch all sorts of public issues that we should care about, and therefore public and private are really inter far more intertwined than classical liberalism admits. But neoliberalism goes even further. Neoliberalism is a tendency represented by, by Hayek, by... Friedman, by the people around the, what's called the Mont Pelerin Society, um, Karl Popper, later on put into practice by figures like Margaret Thatcher, it goes even further. And Tony Blair, Bill Clinton, etc. It goes. It, it suggests that not only should the state leave the market alone, but the market should govern the state in some ways. That is that the um, that the benchmark for whether or not the state is doing things the right way is set by the market, by sort of market type standards of always quantifiable outcomes. And if the state provides any service, it's sort of just one more competitor in the market and it has to prove itself on, in market terms. And the bleak end result of that is that there's a New York Times story a year ago 
about hospital chaplains, Christian hospital chaplains, not necessarily Christian, of various faiths, hospital chaplains, people who typically minister to the dead and dying and their family members, and they would find themselves having to show quantifiable gains. They have to show quantifiable results. So that's neoliberalism. It goes even further, right? It treats all sorts of things that ordinary people think of as public, like firefighting, you know, water. Those two are market products, and they should be governed by the rules of the market. So that's the difference between the two. But okay, so now back to the main question. Um, we just have to recognize if you care about historic Christianity, what it said about how to organize our common lives together is that that runs totally contrary to the whole thrust of historic Christianity. Historic Christianity, you know, first of all, adopted classical ideas about what politics is about. And that meant, roughly speaking, politics is about the common good. It's it, it's not about uh, maximizing the individual rights of particular market actors come what may. So you have to, there's a sort of choosing. I think the most honest of these people, um, like the late, uh, who's the, uh, Michael Novak, right? Uh, uh, the spirit of democratic capitalism. The more honest of them, like he did, he would just say, look, the Pope said some stuff about economics, but the Popes didn't really know. And the economics is up to you to decide individually. And here's, you know, the market really is the best way. You know, leave it at that. Um, I think if you read The Spirit of Democratic Capitalism, more or less that's the posture that it takes that, uh, okay, yes, they said some things. But if you're serious as a Christian, as a young Christian, you want to you want to think about what the church has taught about economics. Well, it's taught the common good. It's rerum novarum. It's Catholic social teaching. It's a recognition that classes are, you know, we don't live in a classless society, that, that we live in societies that are riven by class and that the higher owes something to the lower, that there is such a thing as a common good that we should collectively secure, that workers have certain rights which they can only collectively secure. That is the that is the upshot, kids, of rerum novarum, that there are certain rights that workers have, rights that adhere to them not as a matter of charity but justice, and that they, in certain cases, they can only secure them collectively, and therefore that's legitimate. That's why the church has historically... Uh, supported labor unionism. It's why someone like the late Benedict XVI said uh, social democracy is in tune, attuned with Christian social Christian social teaching and has produced a great flowering of you know human flourishing, etc. I'm I'm only slightly paraphrasing. So the point is that the tradition that you honor is not straightforwardly a Milton Hayek tradition. So that's my initial answer, is that just that's not what and Hayek is very interesting. Hayek um on the one hand says, you know, this kind of individualism that he recommends goes back to the very origins of the West, I guess, like classical and biblical thought. And then at the same time says, thank God the modern sort of enlightenment liberal era came around because we could finally be free, which is, but you can't say both things. Is, 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 is this idea of this kind of individualism embedded at the origins of the West? Or is it a new thing that we, it's a gift of, gift of capitalism and modernity? Those you can't it, hold both of those without violating the law of non-contradiction. Mm -hmm. So that <laughs> they did their best. <laughs> this dream of escaping human community and the needs to negotiate. Yeah, I mean, it is. I, I hate. Well, man, there's so many um, rabbit trails that are in my mind right now, and one of them is like 
Francis Bacon and the metricification of society, but I think we probably shouldn't go there. Um, so we should probably get to our closing questions. We should because otherwise, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, okay, hang on. Yeah, so I guess there's there was part of Pete and I were kind of thinking like you're gonna get some wild responses, and I and I bet like your book tour is gonna be like basically bananas in various ways and we almost would like to hear the stories after it but i also bet that you have had so far um some pretty interesting both pushbacks and have found yourself with some pretty interesting bedfellows in in agreement so what have been the kind of like wildest like responses and agreements that you've had um in writing this book and reporting it etc um, so to be honest, and this is very auspicious, I'm delighted because, um, as I mentioned at the beginning, this is the first, first interview whatsoever that I've done about this book, period. Really? First. Yes. Aww. I haven't done any interview. This is the very first one because you were so quick to say, let's schedule it. A lot of people <laughs> said, wait, let's talk in July because the book comes out in August. So, you know, I'm, I'm dating the podcast right now. We're recording here in May. The book won't be out for another three months. So it's a little bit hard to answer that. But I will say, um, you know, yeah, I mean, I've definitely had, I've presented pieces of the book in Catholic universities, plural. And I've had a lot of young people say, well, I've read Thomas Sowell and he says that, you know, minimum wages are really bad for workers. I'm like, well, my answer has been, well, why, why is it that like working class people, whenever they've been able to fight politically, they fought for, you know, minimum wages? Is it like you really think they... <laughs> I don't know what that's a, is a very simple answer because free market theory is in theory, again, prepared to have, there's this reductio ad absurdum of letting wages fall to nothing so that everyone, you know, can find the job that they can optimally do. And so you have people working for nothing, making products that are worth nothing. You know, this is a Galbraithian joke about the reductio ad absurdum of, of libert libertarianism is workers being paid nothing to make things that are, sold for nothing. And that's not how society works. In reality, the last time we had drastically low wages, it led to a demand crisis and a, and a great depression. I think that's the, and, it, and it's sad, I guess, the, the reason I'm mentioning this as a reaction is that in a Catholic university, the first thing a young person raises his hand to object to is like, do we really need minimum wages, which is, um, but, you know, on the other hand, you know, I'm very proud of the fact that I've written the only book that is blurbed by both Slavoj Zizek and Freddie DeBoer on one hand, and on the other hand, Senators Hawley and Rubio. I don't think there will be another book that that cast of characters is going to collectively blurb. Um, and yeah, I will. I do look forward to some definite, definite pushback. I mean, it's coming. Well, we will. Um, we'll catch back up with you and get some anecdotes. Um. Saurabh, thank you so much. This has been, I really, I, I, we have like probably a whole other page worth of questions that I wanted to ask and like weird tangents, but we probably don't have time for them. Um, thank you so much for coming on and thank you for your time. I kind of feel like I want to end with reading the, the goose poem. Do you know the goose poem? No. I'm going to read the goose poem to you and it's going to become your favorite poem. The law locks up the man or woman who steals the goose off the common, but leaves the greater villain loose who steals the common from the goose. The law demands that we atone when we take things that we do not own, but leaves the lords and ladies fine who take the things are yours and mine. 
The poor and wretched don't escape if they conspire the law to break. This must be so, but they endure those who conspire to make the law. The law locks up the man or woman who steals the goose from off the common, and geese will still a common lack till they go and steal it back. That was a um, sort of, I think it was like 1600s leveler English radical uh, broadside poem, and I will send it to you. I'd appreciate it. Thank you so much, Sarah. This is a great time, and the book is fantastic, and I really do kind of, I feel like it's about to kind of break people's brains in a good way. So I look forward to seeing what happens. <laughs> Inshallah. Thank you, guys. Really appreciate it. Thanks for listening. Be sure to subscribe on iTunes or wherever you get your podcast needs met and share with your friends. For a lot more content like this, check out plow.com for the digital magazine. You can also subscribe. $36 a year will get you the print magazine, or for $99 a year, you can become a member of Plow. That membership carries a whole range of benefits, from free books to regular calls with the editors to invitations to special events and the occasional gift. Go to plow.com to learn more. On our next episode, I'll be talking with Sora Began and Matt Sitman about friendship and enmity across political lines. <laughs>